Hello, thanks for listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the fourth and final seminar of Easter term and also the final seminar of the academic year. Welcome to our 19th overall episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. I'm Lewis DeFreitz, I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here in Cambridge and I'm delighted to be speaking today to Brooke Blower, an Associate Professor of History at Boston University. Brooke is a political and cultural historian of the modern United States with a special interest in the role of America and Americans in the world. Her first book, Becoming American in Paris, published in 2012 by Oxford University Press, explores the various activities of the sizable and heterogeneous American community resident in Paris in the interwar period, arguing that just as Americans helped to shape the cultural politics of the French capital, so too did Paris influence Americans' idea about themselves and their own role in the world. I can say personally that it's been very important for my own work, and it also won the Gilbert Chinard Prize from the Society for French Historical Studies. Brooke has also published a number of articles, most recently Nation of Outposts, Forts, Factories, Bases, and the Making of American Power in Diplomatic History, and is also the founding co-editor of the journal Modern American History, along with Sarah T. Phillips. All in all, she's a historian doing some absolutely critical and exciting work, and I'm very excited to talk to her about some of her newer research today. Brooke Blower, welcome to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Thank, thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. So we're going to talk a little bit about the paper that you've pre-circulated today, a little bit about your wider research and ongoing work, and maybe some of your broader experiences as a historian. Sounds good. Okay. So your paper is somewhat cryptically titled Gibraltar's <laughs> of the Pacific. Can you tell me and the listeners of the podcast a little bit more about it? Yes. So this is a, um, a piece of... of um, uh, a storyline about a man named Frank Kuehl. Mm -hmm. um, Frank uh, was an export uh, salesman. So he was posted in Southeast Asia in the 1930s by a company called Dodge and Seymour, uh, which was based in New York. And what his job was, was to try to find customers for American goods um, in places like Singapore, Manila, mm -hmm. Batavia, uh, and, and other places in Southeast Asia, and, then, and some in South Asia and East Asia as well. Um, and when I found his um, documents, uh, I was really intrigued by the ways in which his business correspondence um, very richly retold um, a story about this world of colonial Southeast Asia that we haven't really seen in much depth before. Yeah. Um, and so I was trying to use his experiences in Southeast Asia, Asia in the 1930s uh, in order to try to recreate that world on the eve of World War II. Right. And so in a sense, um, it's called Gibraltar's of the Pacific because it's really about these places like Manila and, and Singapore mm -hmm. that, that felt very secure and complacent um, uh, and uh, safe from any possible attacks. Um, uh, but also, I think for the seminar, I called it something like the road to Pearl Harbor retold or something. Okay. Yeah. Because in a sense, what I'm trying to do is think a, think a little bit about that narrative, the road to Pearl Harbor, mm -hmm. um, in a different way than the way that it's normally narrated in U.S. history. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, it's told um, as a story that focuses on policymakers in Washington and in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. um, and it really feels like this is a conflict that brews from afar um, and that uh, pits uh, two different nation states against as, against each other. Yeah. Um, and, and the sort of day of infamy narrative that that makes it sound like this attack on Pearl Harbor is both an attack on Pearl Harbor itself rather than a broader 
uh, war that unfolds across Southeast Asia um, and um, something that kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And if you actually um, look at that road to Pearl Harbor from the point of view of people who are living in Southeast Asia, both Southeast Asians who are, are living under colonial rule, mm. um, uh, Americans who are posted there for businesses, uh, for the government and so on, uh, British imperialists also, Dutch imperialists, French imperialists, that story looks a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and Southeast Asia is really the, the kind of you know, contact zone where a lot of the tensions that build up and build up and build up and then erupt into the war um, mm -hmm. are, are brewing. And so, so I wanted to try to give a kind of rich retelling of that story. Yeah. Um, and Frank, um, uh, who was posted in Manila in the early 30s, and then he moves to Singapore, and then he moves to Batavia, and he's actually um, in Batavia when the Japanese invade mm -hmm. and narrowly escapes. That's a, a different chapter. So this is a kind of slice of his, uh, his World War II story okay. that I've given you. Yeah. And it, yeah, one of the things that comes across reading the paper is not so much a sense of foreboding, but this impression of like Japan's increasing presence in that part of Asia. Yes, I was yeah. trying to really give a kind of like do, use a lot of foreshadowing mm -hmm. um, by hinting at, you know, what's coming. So one of the things I did when I was researching it, um, I, I researched not only where Frank was in the 1930s, but what happened to the spaces that he was in after the Japanese attack. Right. Uh, so he lives at the U.S. Army and Navy Club in Manila. Um, and if you actually trace through the history of the Army and Navy Club, um, you know, it's, of course, invaded by the Japanese. They yeah. take it over. Uh, it's then utterly destroyed down to the studs uh, in brutal, you know, floor by floor fighting um, mm -hmm. when when the allies return. Um, and uh, other places that he frequents, you know, the cricket club, or, you know, these kinds of uh, colonial um uh, uh, places that, that these men love to frequent um, get turned into de detention centers for mm -hmm. people who are interned uh, or get destroyed. And so I'm trying to sort of see that that um, that story uh, yeah. along the way to, sh to sort of so you know something bad is coming. Coming, coming yeah. Um, and there's a kind of, there's almost a kind of colonial comeuppance that I think it, it yeah. suggests because this is a story about, you know, um, um, colonialists who mm -hmm. really um, have a sense of racial entitlement and are really blind uh, to the angers that this has um, stirred up. Yeah. Um, and so hoping that the, you can use that sort of dramatic irony so the reader knows this is all going to come crashing mm -hmm. down, even as Frank is kind of blissfully moving through this world without knowing. Yeah. And I think that does come across in the paper. And I've got I've made note of some of the things you mentioned. He does. So he joined the polo club kind of socialized in colonial society he started to speak with a slight english accent while he was in singapore mm -hmm. and he says the american man must dress to maintain his morale in the tropics can you talk a little bit more about you know this individual personal history what it can talk to us about the culture of empire especially in southeast asia prior to the second world war and maybe like how that changed or remained consistent across empires so you're talking about like the american presence mm. in the philippines the british presence in singapore right and the dutch east indies yes um you know, it's it's a really important question, and I think we're about to see a lot of research come out on this that's mm -hmm. going to help us sort of think through that question. Uh, for example, and, uh, Andrew Rotter's book um, on the Americans in the Philippines and the British in India and really the sort of empire of the senses and how yeah. smelling, seeing, touching, and all of these things um, are the foundation upon which these colonial um, systems are built, and that's really who I was thinking about mm -hmm. when I wrote that section and, and quoted him there. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount of overlap um, and 
and yet there are there are some differences. So if you if you if you're wondering about differences, say from the point of view of people involved in in colonial Southeast yeah. Asia, the Americans oftentimes do have a sense of themselves as somewhat more righteous, yeah. uh, as better colonial administrators. Uh, for example, there there does seem to be in their minds, including in Frank's mind, that there's a kind of hierarchy of colonial competence. Mm-hmm. So the French, of course, rank very low. Um, the British often rank pretty low. A lot of Americans denigrate the the British yeah. uh, uh, colonial uh, empire, um, uh, but the Dutch are widely respected, and the mm-hmm. Dutch are seen as sort of model colonial administrators. Um, Frank is a little bit farther on the right than than a lot of American opinions about about empire. Um, he's quite fond of British empire, yeah. and he doesn't have really anything negative to say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, um, in 1942, after he gets run out of Java, um, and he turns up in Melbourne um, and, and gets attached to uh, General MacArthur's um, foreign cor- correspondence staff, yeah. um, word about uh, the Quit India movement and, and sort of the, the move towards independence in India um, is coming into Australia, and he rails about this yeah. uh, and, and what poor timing this is. And, okay, sure, maybe a little reform is necessary, but come on, you know, mm-hmm. the British Empire is the you know, the, the world's civilizer, the greatest thing. So, yeah. um, so, so there's a lot of variety in how Americans are thinking about empire. Um, but there's a lot more pro empire stuff than maybe sometimes we, we see, yeah. I don't know. There, I mean, there's other differences, there's economic differences in how, how, how tariffs operate, for example, or, um, uh, you know, how, you know, the sort of political administration of different colonies, mm-hmm. of course, there's, there's differences there too but i think this is a this is an interesting question that we we could use a lot more work on yeah. kind of comparative great um empire mm-hmm. and well i mean and one of the things that's i guess kind of specific to frank but a lot of americans would have been doing so was that he moves through these spaces right and it's his work that takes him there right yeah. exactly um you know one of the things that that i was struck by working on him is um that you know there is a kind of question about the relationship between, say, U.S. territorial empire mm-hmm. um, and the broader imperial canvas upon which Americans move. So, uh, when um, in you know in the 30s, as it seems like the Philippines are going to are going to receive their independence, um, a lot of Americans think, "Oh, well, we got to get out of here. We got to get yeah. out of the Philippines." Um, but there's not the same kind of sense of, oh, well, well, the whole enterprise of trying to create these trade networks and try to infiltrate economies in Asia is done yeah. uh, because there's so much informal empire going on and then also um, work going on in the formal empires of other powers. Mm-hmm. So it's a very it's a very patchwork world that they're that they're operating in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be a kind of an ongoing issue for Frank. And his employers back in the United States, right? So he's trying to help them understand the consumer markets that they're yes. developing and trading into. Yes, I find this really interesting. And this is something that we don't, I mean, I don't know of any other document collection that mm. would have this kind of blow by blow um, uh, correspondence uh, from someone living there who basically kept every single letter he wrote, you know, yeah. to his business contacts, uh, to his bosses back in New York. And it's really interesting to watch um his correspondence un- unfold and the kinds of conflicts he gets in with mm-hmm. uh, I- into uh, with people back in New York who, you know, he says, you don't understand what it's like out here. And they say, you don't understand what it's like. You're you're out in the middle of nowhere and we're fighting, you know, the New Deal and FDR. And yeah. uh, so there's an interesting debate that goes on between people who are stateside trying to um, export goods and people who are out in the field trying mm-hmm. to work from the from the customer end. Yeah. Um, and the, that's kind of it. That's kind of an interesting story, too. Yeah. And, well, and one touching on that, I guess 
because we were talking about these kind of colonial communities. You've got the polo club, mm. all these different societies. And yet, for people like Frank, a lot of their work means that they can't remain insulated in these kind of like colonial enclaves, right? Like it's partly like he's in Manila to work with people from the Philippines. Yes, right. For instance, yeah. Well, there, and there does seem to be a kind of generational shift that's going on um, around this moment, the 1920s and 1930s. Um, a lot of his early correspondence in the Philippines um, is about who who it's right to do business with. Mm -hmm. And some of the what he calls old timers won't do business with Filipinos, for example. Mm. They will only deal with white customers or white contacts and so forth. Uh, Amer you know, American stateside or, or you know, British imperialists yeah. and so on. Um, and Frank, you know, has a different kind of sense. He's, he says, no, 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 we're going to work with everybody. Um, and um, one of the interesting things about his development as a businessman is that he eventually gets very frustrated with his own American company and he ends up falling in with... Um, a group of very savvy, uh, very advanced um, Chinese businessmen. And he yeah. starts running the import division for a, a company called Qiangguan in uh, Java. Um, and he suddenly realizes, oh, wow, it's not, you know, American business savvy that's um, that's allowing us to find these markets and, mm -hmm. and, and engage in these kinds of long distance capitalist um, um, uh, ways that, that, you know, this company has really got something going on and this, this company, um, uh, is much more aggressive and more, uh, innovative than his yeah. company was back in New York. And that's really interesting. And one of the things I'm interested in long-term is how that gets kind of shut down by the war. Mm -hmm. Um, so, he, so in this, in this piece that you read that it seems like he's moving toward a kind a more international point of view, a, yeah. a recognition, right. That some of these assumptions about, you know, white civilization, um, may be wrong. And mm -hmm. he does seem to be sort of open up to that uh when the japanese invade all of that kind of comes crashing down yeah um and in future parts of his story he he becomes very american-centric mm -hmm. and so it's this very strange turn from from a story about how you know going out into the world and learning about all these different people and cultures and um maybe questioning at the end a little bit of his own assumptions yeah. the war really shuts shuts that down quite yeah. quite seriously I mean, I, I guess it's not really related to the war, but I like the point. There's a little story at the end, towards the end, about him being diagnosed with uh, leodystonia, <laughs> like a form neurosis of the tropics, yes. when it was known as Philippinitis. Yes. Yeah. So Americans and that kind of, yeah, I guess it kind of shows it was having a bit of a rough time near the end as well. Oh but, yes. Yeah. Yes, he's not well at all, um, yeah. and you can see the kind of deterioration in his in his correspondence. Uh, he gets very cranky. Mm -hmm. uh, he gets very impatient, um, and he does seek treatment in the Peking Medical Center, and which is under you know that part of China yeah. is under occupation by the Japanese by that point. Um, and I just thought it was so wonderful the richness of his papers that you could actually. I knew what he was eating. I knew how he was exercising. Yeah. I knew all that sort of day to day stuff that he was doing, which, as we know from from other historians work, is really wrapped up in the stories that that Americans are telling themselves about, you mm -hmm. know, the difference between their their own constitution and the constitution of these other bodies that they're that they're policing and, and, and ruling over yeah. in the empire. So I thought that those kinds of details were, were kind of helpful Crucial. to yeah. make you really feel his experience. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it worked. Um, I guess now's a good time to open it up a little bit. So how does this paper fit into the ongoing project? 
Yeah, so I'm working on a, um, a book about World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the simple way to explain it is to say I'm trying to write a kind of Casablanca World War II history mm-hmm. rather than a Saving Private Ryan World War II history. Right, so okay. it's a history of Americans abroad in the war, um, but it's not simply um, a narrative about um, how the Allies won the war um, and the kind of military history of the liberation, of the liberation yeah. which is what we keep narrating over and over and mm-hmm. over again. Um, and so what I wanted to do was to focus on the experiences of a small group of Americans um, in order to um, show readers the breadth and the scope of, of American engagements in the world, both yeah. leading up to the war and during the war, uh, in order to try to open up that narrative um, and make it feel a little bit new. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Americans um, have lost a lot of a sense of, of what the World War II war effort entailed, um, you know, uh, combat soldiers were a tiny, tiny fraction of, of the uh, Americans who were in uniform yeah. and sent around the world. They were posted on six continents. There's more Americans abroad during the war than any other moment in history. Mm. Um, some Americans are going abroad. Lots of Americans are going abroad, not under the auspices of the military at all. But um, civilian traffic continues, which yeah. is something people don't really often realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to try to convey that, but I also wanted to convey it in a kind of a richly textured micro historical way yeah. because I thought that if you could see this war through the eyes of an individual, you could really feel the, the horrors of it and the, the, the disruption of it. Sure. So for example, Frank, um, in Southeast Asia, um, you know, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor is important, but it's an attack on that entire region. Yeah. Um, and it's not simply this abstract attack that leads to this war. Um, it's the burning of all, you know, these clubs. It's mm. the interning of his friends and colleagues. Um, it's the destruction of an entire way of life. And so, f- you know, feeling it through that personal experience, I think, um, can convey something that if I did it sort of from a bird's eye point of view and told you there's X number of Americans went here and did that and X number went here and then did that. And so to me, it's sort of balancing between a kind of really vast global canvas and then the really micro experience um, will help us see this war um, in a new kind of way. Great. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I guess moving on, we've got a few general questions to close. Um, What's a book or article that you've read in the last 12 months or any time recently that's got you excited? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I've mentioned two things. One um, is an article. um, It's a think piece uh, by Nan Enstad. This was just published in Modern American History Mm -hmm. in our soapbox feature. Um, It's called The Sonorous Summons of the New History of Capitalism, or What Are We Talking About When We Talk About the Economy? Yeah. Uh, And this is a very uh, sprightly, spirited, sharp uh, critique of the origin story of the new history of capitalism. Um, and, and how a lot of scholars who are working in that field set up a straw man, and that straw man is cultural and social history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the dangers of doing this and the ways in which that field needs to pay more attention to the category of economy itself and how it's actually imbued with all kinds of um, cultural, racial, gendered assumptions course, that, yeah. it's, that, it, that it, it means things that we may not mean for it to mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a wonderful think piece, um, um, and I think uh, that would be one thing that I would that I would mention. Um, the other thing I'm just starting to read this, but I'm just absolutely floored by it, um, is a book uh, by Saidia Hartman mm-hmm. called um, "Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments," and this is a book about black women and girls in New York and Philadelphia at the turn of the 20th century. 
Um, and it's about how um, these women who were so often then and now um, sort of, you know, dismissed as uh, problem problems as uh, unimportant, as deviant, mm -hmm. uh, were actually uh, important pioneers of modern American social and sexual uh, mores, uh, yeah. ideas. Um, they're, they're really in the vanguard of so much that becomes a kind of uh, key part of, of modern U.S. history. Um, I find this really interesting because it, it really dovetails with a lot of other work coming out right now uh, on the history of black women mm -hmm. um, as uh, forgotten forerunners of a lot of important movements. So I'm thinking about like Ashley Farmer's work on uh, on black power yeah. and the role of women uh, there or uh, Keisha Blaine's work on internationalists in the interwar period right. yeah. um, and and how there's this sort of hidden history of black women as really um, pioneers uh, in, in so many ways, in so many important ways that we we have not yet really fully recognized. Yeah. Uh, this book, though, also um, is it's methodologically provocative. Um, Hartman is really working at the edges of what I think a lot of historians would be comfortable with in terms of the kinds of conjecture she makes, mm -hmm. um, and which is something um, that becomes important in a field like this where the archive is not kind to, yeah. to, to people that they you know, that haven't been deemed the important history makers that mm -hmm. we're supposed to pay attention to. Um, and it's also just gorgeously written. Um, I started reading it and I realized very quickly that I wasn't gonna be able to underline you know when I read books I normally underline yeah, but sure. it was the kind of book where you would literally be underlining every single mm -hmm. passage because it's it's just that amazingly written yeah so I, I would say those two things those two. probably wow. yeah great <laughs> yeah. so um what's the most interesting place that you've been for research oh um well, probably for my first book, the Paris Police Archives mm -hmm. are pretty interesting. Um, they're located in the Central Police Department in in the middle of Paris, uh, and it's a little side room with mm -hmm. you know with a bunch of scholars who are shoved together at this very like too small table. Yeah, um, it's kind of chaotic. There's not really well, at least when I was there, there there's not really a, a, a very easy to use filing system or anything mm -hmm. like that. So it's kind of got a chaos to it that was really interesting. Um, I did work in Madrid at the, um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, and that was really also interesting, yeah. again, because you, you know, you're working in an actual functioning government building. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, they no longer let scholars into that right. um, facility um, in, in Madrid. Um, and then the other one, um, uh, uh, personal houses. I find that really yeah. interesting when you get to go to people's houses and look through their stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, because you, you get more of a sense of the person, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting actually because uh, I was talking with some other scholars about this recently. We're actually going to run a piece in, in Modern American History about this. Yeah. Um, that that you know uh, when we research, we're doing field work and we go to archives and so on. Uh, and that, that we started to notice uh, some other scholars and I we were discussing our exploits in the archives yeah. and on research trips that that women face a lot of uh, interesting questions that I don't think men often no. face. So yeah. um, going into people's homes is actually something that a lot of uh, female historians, I think, are wary of. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there's the kind of safety question. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I found myself one time in someone's basement and thought, ooh, yeah, you know, I maybe should have brought someone with me. Mm -hmm. But. Um, but the, but it is interesting because you do get to see kind yeah. of unmediated or or less mediated maybe because families mediate documents too. Sure, yeah, but mm -hmm. I guess a lot of things to think about. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess the the final question that we ask to all presenters at the seminar, or I've started asking all mm -hmm. presenters at the seminar, what's your favorite album? So this has to be because you told me you were going to ask me this. Yeah. Uh, it, this has to be the Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, okay. which is the 1963 Charles Mingus yeah. um, album. 
um, sort of like hot jazz ballet, mm-hmm. um, something you have to experience as an album. Yeah. Um, I, I think about this a lot, whether do young people today really understand the album as an art form mm-hmm. because we consume music now piecemeal in a way that maybe we didn't as much before. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so things that have to be experienced as an album, I think, are maybe more rare now. I don't know. You're probably more the expert in that. Yeah, I, I don't know, like because a lot of people say that and I think that is true. For the most part, but you know, there's still good albums coming yeah. out every, and ones that are made to be listened to as albums. Right. And I think there's still a substantial amount of people who are interested in yes. that. But that Mingus album's brilliant. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, it's a great yeah, it album. really is. Great. So, Brooke Blower, thanks very much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to seeing how this turns out. Okay. Thanks very much. Cheers. <laughs>